Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, June 6th, we're studying Acts chapter 15, verses 22 to 35. After the Jerusalem Council, the church in Jerusalem sends a letter to the church in Antioch for brotherly instruction and encouragement in the Christian faith. Help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today. We have with us returning guest, Pastor Mark Squire. Pastor Squire serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. Pastor Squire, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you very much. It's always uh, an honor to be with you. So we're looking at the results, the aftermath, the decision of the Jerusalem Council here. What should we know about the context of the book of Acts and the nearer context within the book as we prepare to look at this text today? Yeah, so Acts is just a wonderful book. I'm really glad that you and your listeners are going through it. You know, it's um, something that we hear for those of us on the three-year series in the lectionary through the Easter season. Uh, And, you know, it's great for Easter. It's great for Pentecost because you have the growth of the church. You have the witness of Jesus Christ. uh, And certainly, too, you have, unfortunately, the, the affliction and the tribulation that the apostles and the evangelists face and yet we see even in that the growth of the church. And when we look at Acts 2, I think what we also see is that the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, we have problems in our congregations, in our uh, uh, synodical level, you know, and, and every every place else, in every corner of the Christian church. And yet, um this has been, it's been the same deal for 2,000 years. We see here, I think in this passage, we're going to see how the church deals with problems, with questions, with with discussions that they have, and how they do so faithfully uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit and with God's word. So here in the, in the immediate context here, what we have, as you mentioned already, was the Jerusalem Council, and there was, there was an issue regarding uh, the Gentile Christians and whether or not it was necessary for them to essentially, as it were, become Jews or follow the Jewish law before becoming Christians or to be full Christians, you know, something along those lines. And this is something that pops up fairly often in Acts. We see it also reflected in some of Paul's letters, particularly in Galatians, uh, when it comes to circumcision or when it comes to the cleanliness laws or what types of food to eat, all those sorts of things. And so this is one, this is probably the most uh, evident example of how this is dealt with uh, among the early church. Hmm. Just as a reminder, with that conversation surrounding circumcision, what was it, what was at stake in the decision that was made in, the, in that text in earlier part of Acts 15? Yeah, so the the gospel's at stake, really, and I think this is the this is the point that Paul makes again to to reference Galatians, is that uh, circumcision was something that was given uh, both to Abraham and then also to Moses at Mount Sinai, and you have something that represents the old covenant, something that was a sign of what was to come, and so essentially uh, for the 
the circumcision party, which is what Paul calls them, to come and demand that the Gentiles be circumcised, really what you're doing is you're undercutting the gospel. You're saying that that those who believe in Jesus Christ aren't saved by God's grace through that faith, uh, but they're saved in large part because of uh, obeying the law of Moses. And that's something that Paul, and of course, then we see here to Peter and James and the others, something that they want to avoid because Jesus is the center of the gospel. And if you're going to put, put the emphasis on something else, whether it's circumcision or anything else, uh, you're really undercutting the gospel. Hmm. Yeah. And so the church gathered together in Jerusalem has made it plain that they're not going to undercut the gospel. That's not going to be Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus anything else, but rather it is Jesus. And so they've, they've arrived at the decision that we've had Peter speak up. We heard what he had to say. Paul and Barnabas have talked about what happened on their missionary journey. James has spoken up. We got to hear what he had to say. And now out of that, the church there in Jerusalem is going to send a letter. Now, this is, I, I was thinking about this. This is maybe, I don't, I don't know. I, I, we, we have, in, in most timelines that I've seen, the Jerusalem Council taking place in the year 49 or, or somewhere close to that. This, this may predate any of, of Paul's epistles, I think. So this may be the first Christian epistle that we have. I, I'm, I, that's maybe maybe a stretch. I don't know. But, but hey, we have an epistle here. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I had the same thought as that, you know, we usually think of epistles in a very specific sense, that is to say, the books of the Bible that were letters. And yet this is an epistle. It's a letter. Uh, and in fact, in some ways might actually be um, I'm trying to remember how long uh, Philemon is, but <laughs> it might be it's right. certainly on the shorter end, but it, but it's an important letter and certainly one that lays out for us not only an answer to this specific debate, but I think it's a good process for how it is that the church should deal with these issues, with these discussions. And so obviously being in the book of Acts, it's the word of God. And so uh, this letter becomes very important to us. Well, let's go ahead and look at the letter then. We're beginning in Acts chapter 15, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent you Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. That takes us through verse 29 of the text. That's the letter. So, Pastor Squire, let's start by talking about the, the various players who are involved here. I think it's worth mentioning again in verse 22 that we see the Jerusalem Council is not just the apostles, but there's more people involved. Uh, introduce us or remind us who we're, who we're talking about here at the beginning of the text. 
Yeah, it's important to know who it is uh, that's involved in this because, like you said, this isn't just uh, some people who are in power, as it were. This is yeah. uh, Paul or Luke here writes in verse 22 that this is the whole church. So he mentions at least here that the apostles and elders are the ones who are kind of in charge, as it were. But like you mentioned earlier, we have any number of players here. So we have Paul and Barnabas who have come down uh, from Antioch with this question, with this discussion about what it is that the Gentile believers need to do in order to be fully in the church. Uh, with them, there's also uh, Peter and James. Like you mentioned, Peter has given, again, his testimony to everything that he's seen. And if your listeners will remember, this is back in, what is it, chapter 10, that Peter and Cornelius have this exchange uh, where Cornelius is sent to Peter to seek him out. And Peter had seen this vision of, of the um, carpet or whatever it was that was coming down from heaven with all these animals. And he's told to kill and eat, etc. And uh, long story short, this is a, a symbol for him of, of God bringing the Gentiles into the church. And so he gives his testimony of that and how he's seen the Holy Spirit fall even on the Gentiles. And then we have James, who the James here has to be the brother of Jesus, because James, the brother of John, one of the twelve's already been killed back in chapter 12. This is the what we might call the second persecution in the book of Acts, where Herod, um, Luke says he laid violent hands on him, uh, killed him with the sword, and then he imprisoned Peter. So this, this has to be probably James, the brother of Jesus. And he too uh, has heard the testimony. He's seen what's happened. And so he stands up to proclaim that God has worked through his Holy Spirit, even among the Gentiles, and has already laid out some of these ideas for for the letter. But again, you know, this this is, it's not just who, who we might call the important people in Acts, just the apostles or the evangelists or something, but but the elders and the whole church that have come together, uh, dare we say, in synod, to to deal with this in a in a way that will be faithful to God's word and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I do think that that's an important point to to bring out. Lest I mean, because there are there are these suspicions out there about the church and, and charges will come from from secular sources that, well, these things are just made up. It was just a bunch of powerful people who's trying to consolidate power for themselves right. and, and they decided on all this doctrine. And and Acts 15 describes a very different process than what is sometimes laid as a, a charge against the church these days. Right, exactly. I mean, that that's a, an accusation that has persisted even to this day. I mean, people will tell, I'm sure they've told you too, just as a local pastor that, oh, well, the church just wants my money or the church just wants to control me or my beliefs, you know, and on and on. Uh, people are just seeking power in, in this specific way because this is how they can do it. And yet, especially in the early church, anyone who reads Acts certainly cannot come to that conclusion. There is, of course, a structure. Uh, I, I I don't necessarily want to use the word hierarchy, but you kind of get what I'm getting at if I were to talk right. about apostles or evangelists, people who are in charge, who have been given specific vocations. And yet these are the same people, the people in positions of authority that are more often than not worse off physically or temporally. Mm. They've given up so much, and these are the ones that are targeted for arrest and, and martyrdom uh, because of who they are. Mm. 
So with that context, we also meet some new people in this text, specifically mentioned in verse 22. Yeah, verse 22, as those who will accompany Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch are Judas called Barsabbas and Silas. These are leading men among the brothers. It says, who are these these two? Judas called Barsabbas uh, is probably the brother of Joseph called Barsabbas. This is back all the way in chapter one. And your listeners might remember that before Pentecost, uh, Peter has this speech about Judas who has hung himself and died and gone to his own place that that in order to keep this full number of the 12, that they're, they're going to find a replacement. And they cast lots, but before they do, they pray to God that he would guide uh, their decision and that he would show what his will was. And so, so they, after discussing this, again with this discussion, right, that they put forward two, two men who have been with them since the baptism of John and who have seen Jesus' appearances after the resurrection, and so we have Matthias, who eventually the lot falls on him. But this other man, Joseph, called Barsabbas, and I think Luke says he was also called Justice. Um, so this is, is might be one of his brother here, uh, one of the leading men, like you said, uh, somebody who's probably been around for a while. Um, I don't know that we hear about him again at all in Acts, but certainly Silas we do. Silas becomes quite important to the story because it's just after this account at the end of chapter 15 that Paul and Barnabas, despite all of the goodwill and everything that we see here at the council, have a disagreement about uh, John, who was called Mark. You know, he had deserted them on, on their first missionary journey and uh, Barnabas wanted to bring him back and Paul didn't. And so Paul and Barnabas separate and Paul ends up going with Silas uh, on his next missionary journeys. And of course, you know, anybody who's been through Sunday school or who knows the scriptures knows the story of Paul and Silas in prison and and right. the, the wonderful uh, witness that they give to the Lord Jesus Christ, even in their chains. Yeah, much like Barnabas was introduced, uh, not by way of passing, but very briefly, say in Acts chapter 4, and then becomes a more key player in the narrative later. Similarly with Silas, he, he's introduced briefly here, and then he does also become a very key player. And and just one of the other things that, you know, he's also mentioned in the what we call the epistles of Paul, many of them have more than Paul's name at the beginning. And, and Silas, I'm, I'm pretty sure, is mentioned on at least one of them, maybe a couple as a as a co-author of, of some of those epistles, even if we still call them epistles of Paul. So important, important people mentioned here in the history of the church. Right. And, and they're going to be sent with this letter. And the text of the letter itself begins in the middle of verse 23. Uh, what, do we, what do we see as the letter begins? Well, when it starts, uh, you know, people that have looked at this letter closely see that it does follow a fairly formal structure. Uh, whether in, in Greek or Jewish culture. And that's all well and good. But I think what, what we really want to see here is that as a letter begins, you see that it's a letter of admonition. It's a letter of encouragement. Uh, we see here, especially with the language that's used. So it starts off with the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, which you know may not mean too much yet. But when you see who it's addressed to, you see that it's addressed to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. And I think that's really important. We, we shouldn't go too quickly over that because what they're saying already in the letter, just what their address is that even though these men are apostles and elders, 
they're not somehow lording it over anyone. Uh, the Lord Jesus in Matthew 20 was very clear that although the apostles had been chosen by Christ, uh, designated as apostles from among the larger group of disciples, that they weren't to lord it over like the Gentiles do. Instead, just like Jesus emptied himself of all power and calls himself our friend and our brother, uh, they too were, were to call one another brothers. And so you have this sort of equality and closeness among the brothers and sisters in Christ, that all are are one and in one body in the church. And it's, it's just a wonderful way to recognize at the beginning of the letter that even those who are not a part of their cultural heritage, not a part of their ancestry, so these Gentiles, still through faith in Christ are brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, I think the the dual thing that's happening there, not only of the, you know, even with the order of the church, and you've got the apostles and the elders, yet we are all brothers within the church. Right. Also, then the context of, I mean, just the, the context of the question that was asked about, do the Gentiles need to be circumcised, or, or are they some, you know, maybe lower class Christian or something like that, you know, right from the outset. The brothers in Jerusalem are writing to the brothers in Antioch. Right. We are we are brothers in the faith, and so even even before you get to the the actual answer that's given, you you see that laid out very clearly. And and just a you know this is I think another in general when you look at say the epistles of Paul and the other epistles in the New Testament, sometimes we do skip over those introductory greetings fairly quickly because we know we know what they say our pastor says at the beginning of every sermon grace to you and peace and and we know what's there <laughs> and, and sure but at the same time pay attention to those words because there is often a good deal of, of theology to be to be seen there and just from the very greeting we are brothers here writing to brothers now the the brothers in Jerusalem the apostles elders are writing to the brothers and it says of the Gentiles but then it, it specifies Antioch Syria Cilicia, this is maybe is another place where we, we want to slow down. Why the mention of more than just Antioch, say? Yeah, I think when we compare this epistle in Acts 15 to, say, the epistles of Paul or anyone else, Paul especially would write to specific congregations. So you have the epistle to the Romans, to the Corinthians, to uh, Thessalonica, to Colossae, you know, everywhere else. And so these letters were written to specific places, often with specific issues in mind that may not have mattered to other congregations. Maybe the other congregations weren't having this or that issue or this or that discussion. But here, I think with the mention of several names, what we see is that this is not just an epistle for Christians at Antioch, say, who are having a specific discussion on uh, circumcision or anything else, but that this really, this letter, this epistle, has a broader scope and it has a use beyond just this specific debate and place. I think this this letter really does set forth an example for how Christians who are in the body of Christ approach and deal with issues that come up. And I think that's one of the things that we can see with the mention, not just of the Gentiles, but Antioch, Syria, and, and Cilicia. This was something that was to be spread out. Now, in verse 24, they, they give the background to the reason for the letter and then the reason for the council. What's there in verse 24 that describes the, the lead up to the Jerusalem council? Well, they do lay it out. They lay out the issue. And what I see here is that 
James or whoever's dictating this letter is honest about what the issue is. He, he doesn't give, <laughs> you know, our culture loves to give sort of the faux apologies. So if you listen to a, a pro athlete or a politician or, you know, someone in the public eye who has to apologize for something, oftentimes it's something like, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings, right? It's, it's not a real apology. It's not addressing the issue. But here, even though James and the people in Jerusalem didn't cause this, there's still a sense that there's a responsibility here and that because the men who had come up to Antioch and probably these other places too were troubling other Christians, that there's there's a sense of shared responsibility and, and shared suffering uh, and certainly a shared responsibility towards fixing the issue and, and reconciliation. And so we see that even in Paul's epistles, right, we know that, that those who rejoice, uh, rejoice with one another, those who suffer, suffer with one another. And I think we're seeing this here that James and, and the apostles and the elders and the church in Jerusalem are being honest about what happened. Some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words. Um, mm. So what they're doing is they're beginning with a conciliatory tone. They're recognizing that there is a problem that came from us, even if you know we ourselves didn't give the authority or the instructions to do this. And yet, because they came from us, we still have the responsibility to address what's going on. Uh, what is what do what do they mean when they say that these ones who've gone out from us troubled you with words unsettling your minds? What what does that mean? Yeah, so this word here, troubled, in the Greek only occurs a few times in Acts, but we see it elsewhere in the in the New Testament. And where we see it, it really is a, a deep unsettling. And if you can imagine somebody coming to you and telling you essentially that what you've been doing or what you've been believing has been completely wrong, or mm. at the very least incomplete, right? It, it would say it's an attack on the foundation of your faith. So you can imagine, for example, another time that this word is used is when the disciples are in the boat in, in the Gospels and Jesus comes walking on the water to them. Well, at first they think that he's a ghost. And so they're troubled in spirit. And I certainly would have been troubled too, seeing somebody <laughs> walk on the water. So, I mean, you kind of get a sense with that. This is this is the feeling that they have, that they're very faith, the foundation of their faith is being uh, challenged or attacked. And so it would, it would cause a crisis of, of heart and soul. Um, mm. Another time that somebody was troubled in the New Testament was when the Magi came and they asked Herod, well, where, where's the king of the Jews been born? And Matthew tells us in chapter two of his gospel that uh, all of Jerusalem was troubled along with Herod. There's this sense of a sort of shaking or almost like an earthquake. And I think that's that's what's happening here. The the troubling with words and the unsettling with minds really is a it's a forceful and potentially faith destroying act. Hmm. Well and even not only just the the troubled word, but also the fact that they are troubled with the words, that mm -hmm. it's the words themselves that are causing the problem. We've seen throughout the book of Acts how powerful the word of Christ continues to be as it is proclaimed, just as, as Christ's word was powerful when he spoke it in the gospel, 
so it continues to be powerful as it is spoken now by the apostles in the book of Acts, that 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 word also has an enemy that is these other words, this false doctrine. And just the the fact that it is the words that are causing the trouble is a is a reminder that false doctrine is is no small matter. There's a reason that it gets addressed in this epistle and throughout Paul's epistles that false doctrine, it actually hurts people. It does. And, you know, it's interesting and, and powerful to see that the, the false doctrine, the false words are being addressed with true words. And this is why this is the reason that the letter is being written and sent along with some of these leading men like Paul and Barnabas, that the the true word of God needs to be spoken to comfort troubled minds. And this is simply a reflection of what Jesus himself says, that that those who hear his word will find peace, they'll find rest, they'll find comfort. And and certainly God's word, you know, with like you said earlier in your introduction with law and gospel, the law itself, of course, can cause a certain amount of trouble in that it's convicting us of sin, but God's word never stops there. And so in this way, too, when when someone's been troubled by false words, by false doctrine, the only cure for that is not that we somehow dig deeper in ourselves or that we seek just another word that we want to hear from somewhere else, but certainly that we seek the pure doctrine that comes from God's word so that we can hear the voice of Jesus and and the comforting word of faith and grace that comes from him. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing out the the reality that sometimes the law does trouble us, but that the comfort of the gospel is always uh, is always there. Uh, it, and I, I know different languages, and probably not maybe in the same word in which it gets translated into Greek, but the Elijah being called the troubler of Israel. Yeah. No, no, he <laughs> yeah. really wasn't the troubler of Israel for proclaiming the law. He was proclaiming the truth right. that repentance is needed so that the gospel could be proclaimed. This sort of trouble here is the the type of trouble that the Lord solves by sending his true word. That's what's sent to the church in Antioch and other churches in the area through this letter. And we're going to keep looking at the letter on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're studying Acts chapter 15 this morning with Pastor Mark Squire. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, June 6th. We're studying Acts chapter 15, verses 22 to 35 with Pastor Mark Squire. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa. Pastor Squire, prior to the break, we were looking at this letter sent from the Council of Jerusalem, from the whole church there, to the church in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia. And they've introduced the, the situation. They've been conciliatory in tone. And, and in verse 25, now it comes time to announce what the decision was. So it seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them. And and what's what stands out to me, and maybe it's because I'm I'm Lutheran and I'm used to having everything named Concordia. <laughs> uh, having come to one accord, I, I think that describes in brief what happened at the Council of Jerusalem. What's the significance of, of that simple phrase? 
Yeah, you know, I, I joke that we as Lutherans are not very creative. You know, people ask where I went to school. <laughs> well, which, which one? They're all called Concordia, right? But, right. <laughs> um, but no, this it's really important because if you just read the first part of verse 25, it seemed good to us. Well, there are a lot of things that seem good to us in our human <laughs> nature, right? But the fact that they're coming to one accord and they're doing so as we see throughout this letter and throughout this account, throughout the council, that they're doing so through prayer and through the Holy Spirit, this one accord idea, it happens several, time in, several times in Acts, and we see it in, in church history, certainly in, in the Reformation and, and the striving after the truth from God's word. But what we see here is that the one accord comes through these times of prayer and uh, through the, the discussion, uh, the honest discussion that comes with wanting to seek the truth and not just, well, what might you know, cause our numbers to grow or what might make us feel good, but what, what is true, what is in accord with God's word and will and with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. What you said there, what is in accord with God's word, I think is is very key. When you, I mean, thinking back earlier in the book of Acts, one of the key passages back in chapter 22, that they they had those things in common. And one of the things they had in common was actually the word of God right. and the, the teaching of the apostles, such, such that, and again, this goes back to what we talked about earlier, this coming to one accord is not what the men in power in a, a closed room decided so that they could keep the power but rather they they came to one accord based on what God's word says. And and again, just a, a reference to the previous text is very clear that Peter, Paul and Barnabas, James, it wasn't them giving their opinions, but drawing the church back to this is what God has given us to do. Let's do that. Right. And it was evident for them the working of the Holy Spirit. And and certainly in in their time we see the differences that, you know, how the Holy Spirit was working as far as the speaking in tongues and and the shaking of rooms and, and the tongues of fire and all these different ways that the Holy Spirit makes himself evident among the people. And yet we see that all of this is happening with the proclamation of, of God's word. Just as Jesus said at the end of Luke, the beginning of Acts, that they're going to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes in power. And the Spirit comes over and over again in, in these various ways. Uh, and again, to drive them to what is the true word of God. Now, because of this one accord that they've been drawn to in the word of God, therefore, it seems good to us to choose men. So that would be Judas and Silas, and we're going to send them with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, what What's being said in this part of the letter? Yeah, they use the word beloved, which I, again shows the closeness. So all the way back to verse 22 with the whole church and the the agreeable approach and everything else. But also it stands in stark contrast to the unauthorized troublers, right? Mm -hmm. So you have beloved Barnabas and Paul and these others uh, um, that were chosen that you just mentioned who are coming with the authorization, with the one accord, with these comforting words and encouraging words. And so, again, in contrast to these unauthorized ones, the ones who are causing trouble and unsettling in hearts and minds, you have um, the ones who are coming with what needs to be said, what people need to hear. Hmm. What else did they say about uh, Barnabas and Paul in verse 26? Yeah, he says that they risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is is a really powerful message for people to hear. So not only are they going to hear the words of the letter, but they're going to see in the flesh 
Paul and Barnabas, and perhaps even see, especially with Paul, the scars or the marks that he has on himself mm. from the stonings and the beatings and, and the other attacks that he's had to face, and see for themselves that they've risked their lives. They, they've been willing to give their witness, the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in danger. Uh, the danger that has befallen Peter and Paul, the apostles, the deacons. I mean, you think about Stephen, you think about James, who's already been killed by the sword. So these these would have been living examples for them that, again, we, we go back to this idea, this false idea in our world about the church being just power hungry, etc. This is not what happens when men get into a room and want to consolidate power. They don't risk their lives for for a message uh, they make other people do it and that's not what barnabas and paul that's not what peter and james are doing hmm. right and, and it's not what silas will do when he when he goes with paul later you mentioned the, that very famous sunday school story that's coming where silas mm-hmm. ends up with those same you know risking his life alongside paul which you know, it, it strikes me then as as this delegation is going to go from jerusalem back to Antioch, Paul and Barnabas were the ones sent from Antioch to Jerusalem in the first place. Now the church in Jerusalem is going to send them back along with their own delegation, Judas and Silas. So, and I, I think within that, I mean, it certainly makes sense from, you know, it's, it's a very conciliatory thing to do, but it does again, show the, the oneness of the church there in Jerusalem and in Antioch that look, we're in this together. You sent us Paul and Barnabas. We're going to send them back to you as beloved ones. And now with our, our two as well, Judas and Silas. Right. And they're going to confirm by word of mouth and what the others have said and what they're hearing. So this isn't just going to be a letter, which letters can be very intimate, of course, but but they're still just letters to have somebody come and say, hey, this is the letter and I'm going to read it to you, but I'm also going to confirm for you that this is true and that we are, like you said, in this together, it, it makes the impact of it even more. Mm, yeah. So maybe Judas and Silas get to be guest preachers yeah, in the church right. of Antioch or something like that. You know, I mean, and I, I say that slightly tongue in cheek, but it, it's not hard. I mean, we think about Paul's epistles and, and how often they would have likely been used within the context of a worship service. I'm not sure that, that this epistle it would stand in the place of, say, a sermon, like I think some of, of Paul's letters probably were. But I, I do think to, to envision this letter being read and some of these discussions being had in the conver- in the context of a worship service isn't isn't too far of a stretch. Right. Well, especially with, like I said earlier, the, the attacks on the foundation of the faith of the people in these congregations. And so what better place than to hear the comforting words of God from the church in Jerusalem that these Gentile Christians, you know, if I'm putting myself in their place, you know, saying that we are our brothers with them, we are accepted by them, we are one body with them, and and they love us and care about us enough that not only are they writing us a letter, but they're showing up in person, you know, Paul and Barnabas, Judas and Silas, to to walk with us and and to encourage us. Now, as the letter comes to a conclusion in verses 28 and 29, there's a, a pretty key thing that we were talking about this one accord and the decision being made, not just a human opinion. It, in verse 28, James, as, as he dictates this letter, says, it has seemed good, and not just to us, but to the Holy Spirit. That's that's pretty big. 
It is. And it really clarifies for us again that this isn't their opinion. This isn't what they want or what anyone else wants, but this is what seemed good to the Holy Spirit. And so when we look back at that verse, uh, what verse was it again? Um, uh, was it verse 23 or wherever it was at the beginning of the letter where they say, said it seemed good to us? Oh, there, uh, verse uh, 25. That's it, a clarifying spot. So it's not that it seemed good to us because, oh, it sounded nice, but because <laughs> precisely it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's been guiding their decisions uh, as the authority for their life together. Now, it's not made clear here how the Holy Spirit has worked. I don't know if he spoke to someone through a dream or vision like is common throughout Acts and through the rest of the scriptures, if the Holy Spirit has worked in some other way, or if this is just through what we might call, you know, mutual consolation of the brothers or through these faithful discussions and and working things out through prayer. But one way or the other, you know, we, we shouldn't overlook the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one who really is in charge in the sense that God is the one guiding this and not not James, not anyone in authority. Hmm. So it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And then the letter concludes by listing the four things that were mentioned by James at the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council in the previous text, though they're they're listed in a different order. Uh, what's, what's going on here in, as the letter concludes with these requirements, as it says in verse 28? Yeah, what we can tell for sure from these requirements, like you said, they're in a slightly different order, but I suppose maybe that doesn't matter in the end. What, what matters is that we have just four things. They don't say, okay, now go back and read Exodus and Leviticus and then get back to us. You know, they only give them four requirements uh, because they want to lay no greater burden on them than just these. So as Lutherans, of course, what we're really good at pointing out is that these commands are not meant to somehow earn their salvation. That should be first and foremost. We already saw back in verse 11 in the previous text that uh, Peter himself, when he stood up, said, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will, just as the Gentiles will. So none of these things are given in, in some sense of works righteousness, Right, grace and faith are still uh, the basis for and the vehicle for God's salvation. But what these four things are doing, I think, as as requirements, are that they're useful for maintaining fellowship and love between the Gentiles and the Jews. So um, they're things that are good to do, at, so as to not cause offense. And this this becomes a really important issue throughout church history, of course, but we see it in 1 Corinthians, we see it in other letters of Paul, and certainly, like I said, throughout church history, that even Paul, Paul goes so far as to say that if, if my eating meat is going to cause somebody to fall from faith, then I'll never eat meat again, right? Which is, is pretty powerful for, for most of us to hear because I mean, there aren't many vegetarians among us Lutherans. There, there are some, I suppose, but uh, we, we like the freedom of the gospel, whether that's to eat meat or to, to drink alcohol, you know, in, uh, in the right amounts. But um, we don't, we certainly never like to hear that doing things is a requirement for salvation that just goes against 
the gospel. But what we do need to hear, especially you know, particularly as Lutherans, is that there are some things that we should say that I'm going to give up my rights, even my freedom within the gospel, if it's going to mean that I won't cause offense or if it's going to be for the help of my neighbor. So, I mean, is, is there something maybe almost like a, a bookend of sorts here going on that as the beginning started brothers writing to brothers, here, here the letter then says, here's how you can be a brother to us, something, something like that? Yeah, I think you're right, because what the, what the letter does is remind the Gentiles, number one, that they're saved by the same grace that the Jews are saved by, but they're also in one body, which means that our lives together mean that we should forsake our own rights and freedoms and desires when it means that I can build up or show love and compassion for my neighbor or you know, whatever reason not to cause offense. And when you start to look at the specifics of these four issues, you see that some of them are, are quite obvious, like we, we should all flee from sexual immorality, right? This is this is not even something that we can have a discussion about. Same thing uh, with idolatry or anything like that, but it's not idolatry specifically here, but food that's been sacrificed to idols from blood and from what has been strangled. And what we see here is that this is interesting because it's a it's a different context than what Paul's writing about in 1 Corinthians uh, 8 through 10, for example, where he actually makes the opposite argument, not to contradict this, but because it's in a, a situation where he's writing primarily to Gentile Christians in Corinth and making the the argument that food sacrifice to idols is nothing because idols are nothing, right? So if you're not causing any offense, then go ahead. You can eat the food that you buy in the marketplace without any weight on your conscience. But here, this is this is a public proclamation. And so if I, as a Gentile, even though I have the freedom in the gospel to eat something that's been sacrificed to an idol, if it's going to cause offense to my Jewish brothers, then I'm not going to do it. I should abstain from that. Which again, if we're to broaden that out, whatever rights or freedom I have in the gospel, then those things I should be willing to give up in brotherly love so as to not cause offense and harm to my neighbor. Hmm. What about the matter of things that are strangled and then the blood, which maybe go together? I, th- I think they have to, because I don't know what else about being strangled uh, would cause offense. I think the, the thing that I found was that something that's been strangled still has some of the blood in it. So it hasn't hmm. been you know, cut open and had all the blood drained. And I think, you know, this goes back to um, certainly the Torah with Leviticus 17 and other places where God says that the Jews are supposed to not eat any of the blood. That's where the life is, as it were. But this also goes back, interestingly, to Genesis chapter 9, where this is part of the Noahic covenant. So when God is speaking to Noah after the flood, he does give him not only the green things, the leafy things and the fruit of the trees to eat, but he also gives Noah and his descendants animals to eat. But he does tell them in verse four of Genesis nine, not to eat the blood. So there probably is a conversation here to be had that maybe eating blood isn't necessarily a great thing. Not that that's something we do, but I mean, there are our cultures or, you know, foods that, that include blood. I mean, even, even some of the European cultures, you have blood sausage or something like that. Yeah. Um, but blood is a very powerful 
uh, symbol and reality for creation. You know, if you don't have any blood, you're not alive. But uh, but certainly for the Jews, they have these very clear commands in the law of Moses that they shouldn't do it. And so this becomes a tangible way that the Gentiles can not cause offense to their Jewish brothers. So with those things laid out, you know, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well and then farewell. That's it. There's not even like grace to you like Paul, but <laughs> comes nice, nice conclusion there. Right. Yeah. You know, I think it, it's short and to the point and it, it does what it sets out to do. That is to say, we're not going to burden you with anything. And what better way to show that than by writing this, this short letter. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And then Judas and Silas go, they give that and they, they confirm it by word of mouth as the letter says. So let's, let's take a look at the rest of the text. We're picking up now in verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement and Judas and Silas who were themselves prophets encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. That takes us through the end of our text through Acts 15.35. So verse 30, they get sent off. What happens when they, they take the letter to Antioch? So when they go to Antioch, uh, the whole congregation gathers together. So again, you have this sense of people are walking together in faith. You don't have Paul and Barnabas, Judas and Silas going to individuals or to the elders of the congregation or the power brokers or however you want to say it, but they're bringing this letter to the entire congregation who has been gathered together. And this just fits in with the overall theme that we've seen so far, this brothers writing to brothers. These are all Christians. These are all members of the body of Christ. And as it is when they hear the letter, uh, Luke says here in verse 31 that they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And what a wonderful response. They hear just the short words of the, this letter. And not only do they rejoice because of the letter's encouragement, but you have Judas and Silas in verse 32, who themselves were prophets, encourage and strengthen the brothers with many words. So you have an example of how words from brothers and sisters can come to you in truth and in faith in accord with the word of God. And we rejoice over that. And yet life continues together and we continue to encourage one another. Paul writes in this way too. I think we see it specifically in First Thessalonians. We actually see it twice where in both chapters five, uh, four and five, he says, encourage one another with these words. And essentially what this means is that what better way to encourage one another in Christ than to speak God's word to one another. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, that, that encouragement aspect here is, I think it's important so that we understand properly those requirements. I know that that may be a, a struggle for some, like, well, you said you don't have to be circumcised, but then you give these requirements, what's going on? I, I think it's, it's very clear. And, and the way you explained it was, was very helpful about not causing offense. I, I think that's, that's certainly what's, what's happening there. But the fact that they receive it as encouragement is just another a confirmation that, that they're not adding burdens, but they are actually confirming what they believe that yes, the Gentiles are fully included in the Christian faith apart from, apart from circumcision and that, that encouragement that they receive both from the letter and from Judas and Silas, it, it, 
it really ties those things together. It does. And to go even further with the encouragement idea here, this the same word, and I just I love this idea. The same word in Greek is actually related to the word that's used. It's usually translated helper or comforter, or sometimes even just transliterated as paraclete, both in mm. John 14 with Jesus' words, where he says that he's going to send another helper who will will bring peace, uh, but also in Acts chapter 9. So this, this helper, this encourager, this comforter is the Holy Spirit that we've seen working in Jerusalem among the churches, that we've seen working among the Gentiles as the Holy Spirit himself comes down to fill them with faith and with joy and with love. And it's, it's this, this wonderful idea that uh, the Holy Spirit, who Jesus says is going to call to mind everything that I've taught you, everything that I've told you, is doing exactly that. And when he calls to mind God's word in Christ, he brings, like Luke writes in Acts chapter 9, he brings peace, he brings building up, they're walking together in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the church multiplied. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is the result, right? That when you hear God's word, when you come together and walk together, there's going to be peace. There's going to be joy. There's going to be fear of the Lord. There's going to be encouragement and comfort. Uh, the, the text concludes with a, a pretty big, I think, a summary of, of what happens at the end of their visit and then what Paul and Barnabas keep doing, setting the stage then for Paul and, or Paul's next missionary journey, which we'll pick up in the next text. Uh, what, what happens there in, in the last couple of verses? Yeah, so you have um, in verse 35 that Paul and Barnabas actually remain. So it seems that Judas and Silas spend a while there and then they're sent off in peace. And again, I, I just love that idea that they're going back in peace, which this is the peace that passes all understanding, the peace that only comes through Jesus and the Spirit. But Paul and Barnabas stay. And so it's a sign for us, I think, that Letters are great and and they're necessary, these communications that we have among people. Certainly seeing and hearing people in the flesh with their own voices adds to all of that, that it's it's confirmation of what we hear, what we read. So we need pastors, we need evangelists, we need missionaries, people who are going to come and go and, and proclaim to us the word of God and remind us of salvation in Christ. But we also need people who are going to stay. We need people who are going to continue to teach the word of God, teach us what it means to live in the faith. And and honestly, that teaching and that living takes time. It takes hearing the word. It takes walking together. So in verse 35, when you have Paul and Barnabas remaining, what they're doing is teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. Because it's a process. It takes time. And even though this one issue has been resolved, as it were, or at least addressed here, it's not as if circumcision or not uncircumcision is is the only issue that people need to learn about. And so you need pastors, you need apostles, you need these people who are going to come and proclaim and teach and, and walk alongside Christians. Pastor Squire, we have about two and a half minutes left on the morning. As, as we wrap this text up with the encouragement that we see shared from brother to brother in Jerusalem and at Antioch, what's the encouragement for us? How, how do we have this encouragement still today from Acts chapter 15? Yeah, where we see again that this letter is not just meant for Christians in Antioch or in Cilicia or in Syria, but this letter really does 
set a structure, a framework for us for how we're to deal with these discussions, these dissensions, these potential issues or problems that arise. And what we see is that the church does so together. So whether there's a council or a synod or a group of people that gets together and says, what does God's word say? And they get together not only looking at the scriptures, but what they do is they pray together. And what they do is they pray for the Holy Spirit to come and remind us of what Jesus said and to call to mind what it means to walk alongside one another, to love one another, to give up whatever it is that Jesus is calling us to give up so that we can we can follow him. Now, there are going to be times where we this this hurts, right? It hurts to give something up and it can seem to our human nature like burdens. And yet when we see that with the gospel, these things actually are not burdens, but they're they're things that we can rejoice in, that we know that we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we don't have the burden of the law that we have to fulfill or or perfectly obey, as it were, from the ceremonial laws and you know the cleanliness laws and those sorts of things. But that simply what we're doing is walking alongside one another in God's word, in faith, and in love so that we can love God with our whole mind and, and soul and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. So we, we shouldn't be taking care of problems then in the ways of the world. So certainly we should cast off the, the passive aggression that permeates our culture, or even the outright aggression, like like lawsuits or any of the other ways that Paul might address in, say, 1 Corinthians 6 or other places that might bring shame upon the body or might cause offense. But instead, how is it that we can show our love, be bound together by the Holy Spirit and God's word so that we can offer this encouragement and comfort and joy that comes through faith in Christ. Pastor Mark Squire is pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in St. Ansgar, Iowa, helping us today with Acts chapter 15, verses 22 to 35. Pastor Squire, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 15, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.